So I'll tell you a few things about the guy. So he once stuck to the plate without um, what would be considered normal footwear. And he hit a triple when he did so. He accepted a bribe to um, to throw the 1919 World Series. He was subsequently banned from baseball. He's not in the Hall of Fame. I'm talking about hobby darling, Shoeless Joe Jackson. Hi! <laughs> we're going to be canceled. <laughs> yeah, we're going to get canceled. This is Rough Cuts, a conversation among friends about the vintage sports card hobby. I'm Jonathan, Sports Cards and Sunsets, here with my collector buddies Matthew, 1956 Topps guy, and Nate in Cardboard Veritas, as well as everyone joining us on the Instagram live chat this evening, November 26, 2023. Welcome everyone to Rough Cuts. Uh, we've got a great agenda, which I'll go through in a minute, but first I'm going to kick it over to Matthew to share some updates on uh, how, how we're continuing to evolve in terms of formatting and availability of this project that we're we're uh, diving into. All right, cool. Yeah, so um, we've gotten a lot of requests over the past uh, couple of weeks to um, figure out is there a way to um, share this content in a way that's not just Instagram Live. So it's fun for everybody who's in here. Of course, the live format and the kind of our hobby for many of us is kind of homed in Instagram, at least from a social media perspective. But I think as we all know, like doing playback on Instagram pretty much sucks. It's like a not, <laughs> not a good experience. Like you can't really pause it. And then if you like leave the screen, it's almost impossible to find your place back. So that kind of sucks. And so, you know, been trying to up our game on the tech front a little bit and um, excited to announce today that we've been able to kind of grab all of the audio from all of our episodes and uh, put it into a uh, podcast format. So we're going to be sharing the the audio content, um, both through um, Apple Podcasts as well as Spotify. So that's going to be really cool. And then uh, in the works, we're also trying to figure out how to um, share this to YouTube so that the, the video content also gets kind of stored and is able to be viewed in a little bit more of a user-friendly way than than Instagram. So I think we're really excited about that. So um, probably at the over the next couple of days, we'll probably be sharing the links to the um, to the Apple Podcast and the the Spotify link so that people can um, sign up and listen to us. Of course, like I mean, I, I guess I want to say that you know none of us are doing this to like create uh, additional influence or to like you know quit our day jobs. Right? This is just fun for us. But we do want to make it easier for people to like listen to the content and stuff like that. So, um, so we're going to be really excited to to roll that out over the next uh, next couple of days here. Yeah, I'm super excited about that, and and I agree. This is just you know it's a hobby for the three of us, and you know in fact we even hope to have other folks that we're buddies with through the community on and uh, you know sh sharing the conversations with us. But you know it's this is something that I think is taking us to the next level of uh just diving in and having fun with this thing so i'm excited to see where it goes yeah well said guys and i i just want to thank both of you guys too for all the work you've been putting in matthew you took a lot of initiative and in figuring out how to do this none of us podcast veterans uh and you you dove in and, and figured it out and definitely appreciate that and jonathan you've been doing some great work in the production side with music and um you know cut, cutting some of the uh video and sound and stuff so um, appreciate what you guys have been doing and yeah excited um so, you know, certainly there's some content that i've 
only had available to me via IG Live. And as you said, Matthew, it's a really tough way to watch. And then I feel like we set out a lot of times to do kind of like an hour, but we often end up closer to an hour and a half. And especially for 90 minutes to, you know, just be on IG Live is tough. So hopefully it'll make it easier for for some folks yeah. to check. Um, and I just uh, wanted to shout out real quick too, um, just before we move on, some of the folks in the chat. Um, looks like we have a, a lot of our buddies here and appreciate you guys joining. TJ is online. Is is in um, Josh Hall of Fame cards is here. Um, J Rock, uh, Jim, nineteen fifty six tops. Uh, Babe Ruth cards. Chris Publius, who's been a great supporter of our efforts here to to get this thing going. Um, signed nineteen thirty three Gaudi Cousins collectibles, um, and some other folks. And we actually it looks like he's not in right now, but um, sports card talk was just in did you guys see that he's the uh I, I believe the seller of the baltimore news babe ruth so that's uh a nice little vintage hobby celebrity we <laughs> <laughs> very cool yeah. yeah all right well uh uh why don't i go through the agenda really quick and we'll dive in um so a lot of these things are have become sort of standard agenda items for this format and we want this to be really card related so we're going to start off sharing a recent vintage pickup or just a card that we've been vibing on recently. Um, as a second agenda item, we are going to talk uh, briefly about um, all, everything that's going on with Rob, sports card therapist. You know, he, he's someone who's um, all three of us have been on his podcast before, and we felt like that was something we should address. Um, third, being Thanksgiving week, we all wanted to share about um, reasons we're grateful for the hobby and just kind of some reflections on that. And we're going to do another episode of Rocking the Boat, our thoughts on overrated and underrated uh, athletes in in the vintage hobby. And then we'll end with uh, a recent mail day or just some parting thoughts on the hobby. Um, with that, um, yeah, anyone want to volunteer to go first on vintage pickup? I will. All right. It's, I, I have one that's kind of appropriate, actually, for, uh, for our um, podcast here. And, and our name um so i have behind me some cards i just got this week in a pw mail day but then i also um picked up this 1957 tops willie mays um in uh sgc 6.5 and um this is a card that i had in a psa 7 that i sold um because it was a little too high grade for me and it was um it was pretty off center for a seven so it just wasn't a card that was a great fit this one <laughs> i didn't Move down grade quite as much as I had hoped to. <laughs> um, you know, I was kind of thinking like a nice 4.5 or a 5 for this card, but um, Big Mac's card box ended up having this one available. Mac, it's the guy we know from from Instagram. And it was perfectly centered both ways, really. I, and I don't say that like too loosely, but as far as I can tell, it's pretty 50-50 both ways. Um, really nice surface and just a, a great looking card. Um the one thing that kind of stunk is when it arrived, it has, you can see there, the case is cracked in the bottom left and packed really well by Mac. Um, and there was no damage to the outside box. He had sent me photos before and they were fine. Um, you know, we're, we're pretty positive guys. So I, I'm shout out what I feel like almost always happens in a situation like this, which is Mac felt really bad. He said, Hey, you know, that, that was not like that. I don't know how that happened. I packed it up well, which is all true. And he offered to pay for me to send it and get it um, re-slabbed by SGC, pay shipping both ways. Um, so he did everything right there. I'm not sure yet what I'm going to do. I think I'm, I might actually crack it and send it to PSA. 
Um, just to see what happens there. I'm kind of wondering if it would get a, a six or a seven at PSA. Um, and most of my post-war stuff, the vast majority of my post-war stuff is is in PSA slab. So I, I think I might just take that crack as a omen that I should um, get it in, in a different slab. But the reason it's appropriate, um, and I've talked a little more about this one than I'd intended to, but we're calling ourselves rough cuts. And um, <laughs> I don't know if you guys can check it out. 57. And Jonathan, I know you're a set collector of 57 tops. Right. And this one at a very beautiful rough cut along the left edge that is a classic example of um, of what we're talking about um, and, and one of the usages of the term rough cuts in our name. Yeah. And that's a beauty. You're really slumming with that 6.5 grade. Yeah, big step. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Jonathan, do you, do you already have the, the maze for, for your set run? Yeah, yeah, I've got my I've got a PSA six that is uh, really nicely centered. It, it's a it's a beautiful copy, but not as well registered as that one that Nate just showed. Yeah, it's a cool card. Right, yeah, yeah. All right, so I, I guess I can jump in. Um, so I was, you know, this being uh, Thanksgiving week and everything, um, you know, it kind of made me think about okay, what card am I vibing right now? And so I was kind of thinking about you know, the, the year as a whole and, you know, what I'm thankful for. And for me, I kind of like uh, cheapened out this week in the sense that the car that I'm really vibing is when I'm vibing all the time, <laughs> which is which is my 52 tops mantle. I mean, so the reason I chose it was because, um, right, like th this was a card I didn't, it wasn't on my list to start off the year, but of course, like, you know, being a vintage collector, it was really like a milestone card for me, you know, to get that card. And it wasn't one that, um, you know, I just kind of like bought with cash that I had kind of saved up. Right. Kind of, I feel like I kind of like really um, matured as, as a collector with all the cards I, I, I traded to get it. And, you know, I think those cards taught me a lot about, um, you know, who I am as a collector, like, what are my goals? What, you know, what, what do I really value in the space? And, um, and, and, and it, it, for me, you know, it just comes back to the, this card for me. Right. And, um, I just, I just love it. You know, it's the, it's, it's this kind of thing where, you know, as a collector, you want to derive just so much enjoyment from your cards. And like, you know, when I get up in the morning, I'm getting ready to go to work sometimes, you know, I'll just pop by my little card storage area and, and take a glimpse. And I'm always, you know, this is the first card I always, I always look at and it always makes, brings me, um, so much joy every day and, um, just really thankful to have it, um, in my collection and, um, yeah, just it's 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 I love it. It's so much fun. And uh, yeah, happy to show it off all the time. <laughs> Man, hard not to feel gratitude when you look at a, a card like that it really is a, a work of art. Yeah, that's awesome. And great time to be reflecting on it here, too. As you said, Thanksgiving and approaching the year. Um, it looks like, uh, unfortunately, you're likely moving it pretty soon. It sounds like um <laughs> Chris, and, and you are working out a deal here that's close to getting done. So <laughs> <laughs> not coming out of these hands <laughs> <That's right. laughs> and for folks listening just to the audio what matthew showed was the most gorgeous perfectly centered uh psa2 uh 52 tops mantle just such an iconic card and very cool story behind it yeah uh, yeah and thanks for saying that jonathan like we're trying to because we're trying to move this onto a podcast trying to be a little bit more cognizant of, of talking about what we're showing so thanks for uh for, for restating that, Jonathan. Yeah, you bet. All right, I'll share mine. Um, now, one of the, I'm gonna share a pair of cards. 
And, you know, both both of you influenced me a lot in thinking about collecting, not only as single, you know, singles, but thinking about them as groupings and connections between cards. Now, I, I'm showing two, two 1950 Bowman cards. One is the Jackie Robinson and one is the Bobby Thompson. And it's really interesting because these, you know, these two players ended up being pivotal in maybe the most famous baseball game that was ever played in uh, the the year following this um, in, with the shot heard around the world. Jackie, it's it's little remembered that Jackie actually scored the the fourth run for the Dodgers, and then of course in the bottom of the ninth, uh, Bobby Thompson at the plate had hit a home run uh, that uh, that caused the Giants to to win the pennant. And it, you know if you if you look at both of these cards, they both it's both shows them standing, swinging in their follow-through, right-handed batters, um, and they just pair so well together. And, and for me, um, what's neat about these cards, you know, the Jackie Robinson is an iconic card. It's a four-figure card. I I hunted for this one for a couple of years, and you guys helped me kind of uh, along the way figure out what I was really looking for. You know, the Bobby Thompson, this card might be worth $50. And, you know, it just shows you how much, and, I, and I'm really grateful for both of them, and I'm grateful for the pairing, and it shows to me what I love about this this hobby is there's so much joy to be found in the small cards, the, the cards that have stories, the cards that fit together with, you know, and then the big iconic cards like the the Jackie Robinson. So I, I've really been enjoying that pairing lately. That's really cool, Jonathan. Yeah, that uh, that's an awesome go. And yeah, very, very cool to to put those two cards together. You really don't see the Thompson all that much. So it's, you know, the, the Jackie you see more in... Um, Matthew, I know you in particular have a lot of love for that card. Um, I, I do as well. It's a great one. And Jonathan, um, I like seeing that because I, I was with you, I think, when you made the final decision that you couldn't let another minute go without going to get that card when we were at the National this year. And you showed me that thing on your phone, and I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> you got get that done now. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, neat, neat to see you having that one in hand and putting those two cards together. Yeah. 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 I, I feel like... Uh... I love shouting from the mountaintops how great of a set 1950 Bowman is because I feel like it really doesn't get a lot of um, attention because it you know it doesn't have the Mickey Mantle it doesn't have the Willie Mays and then it's not the like Jackie Rookie or the Satch that's in the 49 set but you know if you look at the evolution of cards I really think that 1950 Bowman is like a critical set right it's the first one with the detailed color background that kind of became like the du jour that became like what everyone wanted to see, like in those, those early fifties cards. And so like 1950 Bowman has a really special place in my heart. And as you know, I love that example that you have Jonathan of, of both of those cards and in particular the Jackie, because yeah, that's like my favorite Jackie Robinson card of all time. I love the image. I love that like standing away shot of him, you know, on the, the follow through of his swing and, um, it's a great pairing, right? And I think that we talk about that a lot in terms of our collecting is like um, thinking about, you know, how does the, these cards fit into the set? And oftentimes, like, does what would I pair this with or what would I group this with in some sort of like coherent theme, right? And um, that's a powerful aspect of collecting vintage cards for sure. Yeah, 100%. And, you, and folks should go back on Matthew's Instagram page and look at his pairing that shows the 50 Bowman Jackie with the 1933 Gaudi Ruth 144 and a, and a really cool write up uh, and that was one of the one of the posts that really influenced me of thinking about cards as pairing so that that was a great one for me 
All right, let's keep it moving. Um, so this next topic is a little more serious, of course. Um, just sharing our thoughts on, um, you know, R Rob Sports Card Therapist, uh, which anyone in hobby Instagram world has been very aware of. There's been tons of discussion around it. Um, and Matthew, I thought maybe we'd start with you and just kind of, you know, share what's what's been your take on everything that's going on, and um, and then Nate and I'll I'll add and wrap up. Yeah. So um, it's yeah, it's a tough topic, right? Um, I want to first like give a shout out to uh, Jeremy Lee. I think that he and uh, Science Lab did a nice discussion of this, and you know, one thing that they kind of pointed out was, and this was also pointed out previously in them. Um, when Adam, the real 27 guy came on Rob's podcast after the whole, um, shy logs or whatever shy, like the guy who got caught, um, shilling, you know, talking about kind of separating the person from the behavior. Right. Um, I think that those are, those are some subtleties that are worth like thinking about when it's so easy to just get like really angry about what happened and just like roast people. Um, also want to shout out, um, Chris and Josh from the crossover. I think they did a nice, um, summarization. I'm not going to go into like the, you know, the facts or whatever, or what happened, but more just, you know, that that's been like kind of done to death, but I kind of just want to start off with kind of like, what am I feeling? And it's, I guess it's a combination of sadness and disappointment, um, from two sides really, right. It's kind of sadness and disappointment that like, um, basically Rob would take an action that, you know, make a decision that essentially goes against, um, kind of the hobbies, like unwritten code of, of, you know, how you, how you handle yourself and transactions, but also sadness and disappointment in the fallout, right. Both in terms of, um, how he was really vilified within, um, the Instagram hobby, which is not the same thing as the hobby, but is the Instagram hobby, um, and really kind of torch, but also and partly because like, I think that, really rob led the way in collector focused content in an era where virtually all the content you would hear was investment content about like the market and how to make money off of cards and you know he also did a really good job of giving a voice to people like me like nate like you jonathan of like you know having just like, normal collectors like on his show to talk about why they love cards and i think that you know with him removing his content and kind of pulling himself back from, you know, the hobby side of Instagram and social media, like we've lost that. And that, that, that losing that voice is really disappointing and saddening. Um, I guess I want to say like, it's pretty obvious that the, you know, the, the action of like not paying for an auction that you won is like, you can't do that. You just simply can't do that. And, you know, I, I kind of view, you know, the unwritten rules of the hobby is kind of largely simplified it's just like you know having honesty and integrity in your dealings right where you know you don't bid on things that you're not willing to pay for you don't you know you don't bid on your own items when you're doing a private transaction you don't try to like make up some other offer that you have from someone else to kind of leverage your way into more money from you know it's basically just like try to treat people as if they're people and i think um my other point here is that like, I just feel like the role of the, of anonymity played such a big role in, in what happened here, both in the original action and the consequences in the sense that, you know, I think Rob probably felt empowered that, you know, he's like, Oh, I think this auction's being shilled. I can just not pay for it. And, and there won't, there won't be consequences for me doing that. 
And that's conditioned on the, the anonymity that he was using as just an eBay user. At the same time, the kind of backlash to what happened just really ramped up, up so quickly because of the anonymity of Instagram, right? You have all these people, they're, they're not thinking of Rob as a person. They're thinking of him as like some character on a TV show that they used to watch and now they're mad about it. Um, and I feel like a lot of the conversation that was had around the topic was pretty much garbage. It was a lot of like junior high level emotional response and there wasn't a lot of nuance to um, what happened. And it's just so easy to, to vilify people and to just trash them and then not like kind of put yourself in their shoes and recognize that people can, you know, all make mistakes. And I think, I guess what I would want to leave people with is that, you know, if you have questions about like, you know, I'm engaging in some behavior, I'm not sure if it's okay or not. It's like totally fine to like reach out to your buddies in the hobby and run things by them and be like, Hey, you know, I, I don't know. I think this auction might've been chill that I'm, I'm think I'm considering not paying. Can one of you guys take a look at what happened in this thing and let me know your thoughts. Right. And I feel like, by kind of like getting input from other people that you trust, a lot of these things can be can be mitigated to some extent, and um, we can at least communicate about it. Communicate about it in a in a productive way, and not just a flamethrower like grenade tossing kind of way. So overall, just really disappointed and pretty bummed out. That's how I'd summarize my feelings on it. Yeah, um, Jonathan, do you you want me to? Yeah, go. I'd, I'd like to do your thoughts as well. Yeah. Um, Matthew, I, I think that's a, a great summary and really certainly captures a substantial part of my thinking on the topic as well. I know the three of us have spent some time talking about it and, um, you know, I think view a lot of it pretty similarly. And yeah, I think, I think you did, you know, a great job of, of um, summing up a lot of it. Uh, you know, I just, I, I guess a few other things. Um you know, I think in Rob's apology video that was issued and, you know, came out shortly after uh, it was, uh, you know, put out there that that he had done this on eBay. Um, you know, I think probably what he wanted to do there was to kind of get a response out quickly, get an apology out quickly. But um, I think that kind of showed, you know, to some degree that you can hurt yourself some more if uh, if if you rushed it. And, and maybe don't do it quite as as thoughtfully. And I, you know, I kind of wish he would have talked to some other people and maybe taken a little bit more time to, um, you know, to get that right. You know, obviously he used that term megabit several times, and that kind of spawned a whole uh, group of memes and you know jokes and attacks related to that. And, and um, you know, I think in part just because people kind of didn't really understand what he was talking about, and or you know thought thought the use of that term was funny, but. Um, yeah, I mean, anytime any of us are talking about it, obviously, you know, I think we got to reiterate that it's, it's wrong and it can't be tolerated. Um, you know, what he did, um, that said, you know, I think, um, in, in Matthew, I think you alluded to this to some degree as well, but, you know, concepts of proportionality and punishment are, I think, important, right? Like we, um, in, in our society, we don't, um, give life in prison or the death penalty for, jaywalking or shoplifting or you know what whatever the you know we we have concepts of of um some degree of proportionality and i'm not saying what he did was was jaywalking um i i don't know if it was shoplifting or or something else but um it 
we try to think about does does the punishment fit the crime and the swiftness and aggressiveness and personal nature of the attacks that came to Rob after this came out. I felt like, you know, at least in my view, felt kind of disproportionate for for what happened. And, you know, I think keeping what he did in contact, you know, thinking about what he did was, you know, it felt to me like a bad decision in the moment where he made a, a big bid that he ultimately didn't decide to stand behind. And, you know, it, it was probably a series of mistakes because at any point before it was discovered, he could have fixed it. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think it was a fraudulent plot by him. It wasn't even shill bidding to try to increase the price of his card. I, I think it was a mistake for a card that he legitimately wanted and realized he had, he had you know, messed up. He said he felt like it was shill bid and his price was raised because there was shill bidding that wasn't done by him. Um, but, you know, I don't think that ultimately is a, uh, you know, sufficient excuse or reason to not pay the bid. Um, but, you know, so thinking about what he did as compared to, you know, like one of the other big sensational things recently was what card porn did, right? With this whole big fraudulent scheme to try to, um, photo match uh, game used Jordan jersey that would have been, I don't know, I think it was six or seven figures of value. And he went to great lengths and created fake accounts. And, you know, there was a dead photographer that was involved. And, you know, like there, yeah. <laughs> this big fraudulent scheme that was done over, you know, so you look at something like that. And this is, to me, pretty different from that. Or you look at like, did Rob have any kind of reputation for doing stuff like this before this? Are we aware that he had ever done anything that we would consider not up to the standard of hobby morals? And as far as I'm aware, no. Like, the guy probably transacted hun several hundred thousand dollars of deals. I mean, he was set up at shows constantly, did a lot of buying and selling. As far as I'm aware, this thousand or couple thousand dollars of transactions that he didn't pay for are the only ones that, um, you know, there there was ever an issue with. So, you know, you look at like if people are doing this m multiple times, maybe even twice, like, all right, let's let's root them out of the hobby. Right. Or like, but are we not going to give them, a, you know, this person a second chance? You know, just feels to me like with something that done seemingly sort of in the spur of the moment is as a, a misstep that the reaction was a little much. Now, I will say, too. I'm a, I am a little disappointed that Rob has kind of gone dark for, I guess it's nine or 10 days or so now, you know, I do kind of wish, you know, he was out there, um, you know, for his sake, kind of, you know, saying what happened and, you know, sort of getting back in the hobby. And that does open up some other questions, you know, in, in my mind and probably in other people's minds, like, well, you know, what was there more of this? I, I don't know. You know, I mean, just thinking about me, I, I mean, I can say, I think we can all say, we never have any plans or I have no, you know, I don't think anything like this is ever going to be along the lines of anything I'm going to do. But if I ever found myself in that situation, I don't think my reaction would be to go dark. I think I would like, I care enough about this hobby. I care enough about this community that I'd want to be out there kind of, you know, getting back into it. So, um, you know, I, I'm hopeful that Ron, will come back like you said matthew and i think it's a really important point he did lead the way in a lot of ways you know over these last couple years and collector focused in particular collector focused vintage content right and you know had a lot of us on and a lot of our buddies on and and 
you know, he's a great listener and created a, you know, a really cool um, environment where people could come on and, and really just focus on cards. And and that is going to be a voice, you know, that's missed if, if he leaves. Um, the one other point I want to make is with all this reaction to this, it, it like something that I have trouble getting out of my mind is like this happens probably hundreds or thousands of times every day on eBay, right? Like this. This is not unusual behavior. We know someone now who has done it, right? And that makes it different. We probably know other people that have done it that haven't been caught, I'm pretty sure, right? Um, but why do we permit eBay and why do we permit Probstein to create uh, an, a platform that allows this to happen if our reaction is going to be so swift and so aggressive when we find out one person that we know does it like we all live in this like we it's a joke in the hobby right like it's oh you're buying it on ebay i hope it doesn't get chilled you know or you're selling through probe scene i hope it actually sells and like trey young you know you see it a lot more on the modern side than on yep. the vintage side but something that's so pervasive like that you know it just and really by a lot of people is to some degree permitted it seems like it just feels like a lot of reaction when yeah. we finally know someone that's done it. So yeah. um, those are some of my thoughts. Um, I, you know, I do hope Rob comes back. I hope he's over a period of time is able to, you know, atone for this mistake and um, poor judgment that, that he's made in doing this. Um, and, you know, and, and I'll say, you, you know, a strong response is, is valuable in this situation too. We are a self-policing and a self-regulating hobby. Um, and so we can't permit this kind of behavior to happen or it's it's going to hurt our hobby. Right. So I by no means do I want to imply that I think it's appropriate to be soft on this stuff. If you have someone doing it repetitively or if you have someone committing a fraudulent scheme or even in Rob's case, there needs to be a price to be paid. And and I don't want to minimize that. Um, but I just want to think about, you know, kind of the big picture and proportionality at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And I think some people have made comments that, you know, at, as a voice in the hobby who was, you know, shared uh, his own thoughts on ethics in the hobby, he certainly did bring a, you know, a higher bar of, uh, you know, what was expected of him. And I think that's that's why a lot of us who knew him were really sad. When this came out, you know, first of all, I just want to say you, your thoughts were both so articulate and I really appreciate hearing them. And I, I couldn't possibly have said any of that better. I wanted to share my own sort of emotional response. In some ways, for, for me, Rob was a little bit like a mini celebrity. And, and throughout the course of my life, I can think of so many times that there was a fall for a celebrity, somebody that we had put on a pedestal and they made a mistake and we saw this downfall. And it's always so disappointing, you know, and it, and um in the in the sports world, Michael Vick was one. You know, if, if folks remember what happened with Vick, um, but at, at the same time, when I when I think about all of these incidents that have happened, where somebody that I kind of put on a pedestal made a mistake, I also think of all these redemption stories. Vick is one of those redemption stories. I can think of redemption stories from Hollywood celebrities. Uh, I can think of redemption stories from Hollywood. Of course, uh, Star Wars is one of the classic ones, and. Um, you know, I really hope that uh, that this ends up being a redemption story for Rob. I, I hope I hope he comes back. I think that the hobby is better uh, with him in it. And he, he made a mistake. And, you know, but the, it also, you know, having been on his show, having met him at the National, 
I felt like he became a friend of mine. And, you know, I, I'm pretty generous with the term friend uh, when I meet somebody. And, you know, there's there's folks in this chat. Jackie's Jordan's mantles. Oh, my. We just started chatting last week. I consider you a friend. Um, and, and Rob was a friend. And when I saw that he made this mistake, it was uh, really sad and disappointing. Um, but I, I, I certainly think there's an opportunity for redemption there. I hope it comes back. Um, I hope this is, you know, a middle chapter of the book, not the last chapter. And, um, you know, it's but it's, it's something that's definitely uh, been tough on the hobby. Yeah, well said, Jonathan. Yep. All right. That was great. Let, let's turn this uh, to something more positive. Uh, it's the week of Thanksgiving. We wanted to share kind of our views on things we're grateful in this hobby for. There's, and, and we've all been talking and reflecting on, even though from time to time there's these moments where a bad actor is called out in the hobby, we all kind of agree that there's so many friends we've made, uh, acts of kindness in the hobby, reasons we're grateful for this hobby. And, um, you know, I think we all want to do a little bit of roundtable on that. So uh, let's let's go opposite order on this one. And Nate, you you start then then Matthew and then me. All right. That sounds good. Yeah. Um, so I I love talking about this topic because um, I, I, you know, I am uh, really pretty much daily appreciative of uh, of being a part of this hobby. So um, th this one comes comes pretty fun and, and easily for me. Um, so, you know, I, I have a lot of thoughts on, on, you know, why, why I'm appreciative and why I enjoy this hobby so much. Um, and I tried to narrow it down to, to just a few. So I, I kind of came up with, you know, and trying to do that three of them that, that really stood out. So the, the first, and I think this is, you know, kind of has to be the foundation for the vast majority of us is, is the love of the cards. And, you know, it, it starts there for, for um for a lot of us i'm i'm a little extreme in that way like a lot of people who do cards um also collect memorabilia or type one photos or um you know maybe <laughs> maybe still some nfts related to that <laughs> some other some other things that are kind of um what i'd consider sort of hobby tangential but I, i'm like i'm just cards and cards alone and you know, so for, for me, like that, that love of cards is huge. And I, I feel like the hobby is so wide and is so deep that I can collect cards forever and I don't need to collect anything else. Right. Like I just, I, memorabilia, maybe it'd be fun. Type one photos, maybe it'd be fun. There's, I'm sure there's a lot of a, whatever, you know, lots of great stuff out there to collect some, some related to cards, some not, but for me, it's, it's just cards. And I, you know, I love the, um, the history and the, you know, the, the card collecting canon going, you know, all the way back, I think to the 1860s when the first card, first baseball cards were made and learning about that, the opportunity to, you know, to kind of study and, and really learn more every day uh, about the cards themselves and the, um, you know, the opportunity to, you know, appreciate the beauty and the different designs and, you know, learn about the history of the players and the sports. Um, and then, you know, with our collections of cards, the, you know, the inspiration to curate, I think, is something that's that's really cool with with the cards themselves. So, you know, that those are all awesome things Um, the the second one, of course, you know, for me is is the community and um, really on a day to day basis. It's the IG community for, for me, you know, you guys and, and several of our buddies here. And, 
you know, the, the chance to have a group of people who are spread around the country and in some instances around the world, um, you know, who, who share this similar passion is, is a really cool thing. And, you know, so, social media, I think a lot of times gets misused, but I think this is like kind of the, the perfect use for, you know, collecting, connecting people that have this, you know, the, this love of, of, you know, what we share and finding people within that group that are, you know, similar enough and uh, approach the hobby and, and life similarly enough that you can create real genuine friendships. So, you know, I think that that part's awesome. And then, you know, it, in addition, thinking about the community also like going to shows, like I just love going to shows. I haven't been to one now in a couple months and I'm feeling way overdue. Like I, I just get so excited, especially if it's a bigger show, um, you know, the, the rush, the, the adrenaline of, of walking into that show and, you know, going around, I mean, the national is the ultimate, right? Like mm -hmm. that's, that's like the hobby Super Bowl every year. And we get excited for months in advance of that, but um, you know, so the, the in-person stuff and then, you know, the community and then even buying and selling, um, you know, I've had the opportunity to have just tons of great interactions with people doing that. And, you know, uh, people in, uh, in really, I was going to say almost every, but I think in every instance, hundreds and hundreds of transactions, maybe thousands by now, you know, dealing with people with, with great integrity who, who love the hobby themselves and, you know, having, having the opportunity to, to enjoy that. And then, you know, the last one, um, for me has been the chance to do it with my son. Um, you know, he has gotten as passionate about, um, collecting as, as I am and, it's kind of funny because for the first, you know, I, I got into it kind of right, sort of right as or back into it. You know, I, I collected going all the way back to the 80s, like, you know, a lot of us did and um, got right back into it, you know, heavily um, at the beginning of COVID. And my son was really skeptical at first, like he wanted me to just sell off all my cards and didn't really understand, you know, why I'd be interested in them and just take the money and like get something that actually is interesting or like valuable. Um, but now he has come full 180 and he's all in on the hobby and so you know having the the chance to to do that with him has been really cool and it's w one of the really neat things has been um you know seeing the hobby and in particular the the kindness and generosity of the hobby through the eyes of having a, a child that's in it and you know and how welcoming the hobby has been to him people giving him cards giving him their time teaching him um, and, and then just as importantly, or more importantly, seeing him already start to kind of have that same ethos and pay it forward to younger kids or new people in the mm -hmm. hobby. And, you know, that, um, kind of tradition in our hobby is incredibly valuable and is, you know, such a, a cool part of our community. So, um, those are just a few of the many, many reasons that I'm really excited about what we do. So great stuff. Oh, that was that was really awesome, Nate. It was like uh, definitely Nate, Nate's ode to the hobby right there. That's great. Hey, all right, Matthew. Yeah, so um, pretty hard to follow that one up. So <laughs> let me just say, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty similar things. Maybe I'll I'll I'll, I'll speak to it. Um, maybe I'll, I'll you know come at it a little bit differently. We'll see. But um, certainly, um, yeah, it all comes back to the cards for me, right? Um, and, and for me, it's been just this, like, you know, there's the nostalgic piece to the cards that you collected when you were a kid, but then there's also the, 
you know, it's the physicality, this tangible piece that connects you to this amazing history that's that's pretty well like documented through stories and statistics. And, you know, you can just take a card and it's just like a, you know, it's a time machine, right? It takes you right back into um, a completely different era in, in this country. And there's so many, you know, being someone who's a who's a nerd, you know, self-proclaimed nerd, um, you know, I love like going down the Wikipedia rabbit hole and um, cards are such a natural, you know, there's so many rabbit holes that you can go down and so much knowledge that's out there. And, um, you know, I think that for me too, having like a work life that's very quantitative and, and is constantly using exercising that part of my brain. Um, the hobby kind of gets to use that like, like kind of logic and reasoning for some of it, but I spent most of my hobby life on the art side, right. On like just the, the kind of the emotional connection to the, like the visual appeal of the cards themselves. And um, that, that has been, you know, such an amazing piece, especially in vintage cards of, you know, and also just thinking back to when I was a kid and going to a show at the Holiday Inn and, you know, seeing like cards of like, you know, Mickey Mantle, like if you saw a 60s Mickey Mantle, like that was a really big deal. And, you know, now, uh, you know, like I'm, I can hold like a Babe Ruth card in my hand. Like, that's just crazy. It's it's amazing. And and the feeling that you get um, from um, like just interacting with these objects is just incredible. It's just amazing. But at the same time, as, as Nate said so eloquently, like the people side of it, um, is is an amazing piece of it in and of itself. And I feel like that's an area where Instagram had really um, like lifted to my hobby experience to like a, a le levels that I didn't think were really possible previously. You know, I had been, I've been collecting since about, you know, got back in, you know, almost 20 years ago now in 2005. And, you know, I was kind of like an avid message board person. I remember being really excited about getting a new card and sharing it on a message board and, and I feel like Instagram just takes that to a whole nother level. And as much as I generally, I don't really like social media that much, but for, for curating a card experience, it's been pretty impactful and, and the ability to, you know, I've heard it discussed like of, you know, you, you curate your collection, but you also curate your experience and, you know, all of these events with Rob and everything have, you know, only further shown me, you know, how important it is to curate my experience on Instagram to maximize my own happiness in the hobby. And, um, I, you know, I've had so many positive interactions with people. Like we have Marty, I saw he was in the chat, 1933 uh, signed Gaudi. Um, you know, he, I talked, I announced on Rob's show that when I was going to the national, I was going to have um, a Don Mossy card and a 56 top Don Mossy card as like my badge. So that if people were saw me at the show, they should come up to me. And as soon as he heard that, he decides to send me like a, uh, I forget, I think it was like a 64 signed um, Mossy. 66. He just sent, 66, yeah. He just sent it to me out of the blue. If you say, send me your address. And so he just sent it to me. I'm like, how cool is that? And then, you know, I, I had the card. And then, you know, of course, I know, Jonathan, that that you and your daughter have this awesome Mossy collection. So I'm like, you know, this card belongs with you guys, right? And, and that whole community aspect of... Um, just meeting some really smart, intelligent people that kind of get the hobby in the way that I get, that's been a really um, rewarding experience. And and I think that that's kind of, and I feel like, especially in the last two years, that, that really sticks out to me as a major development in my hobby experience that I'm really thankful for. Totally.
Some, something you said reminded me of when I was in elementary school. We found out that one of my friends, his dad had a 1964 Topps mantle up in his closet. It was a beater, you know, rounded edges. And we just thought it was treasure. And when I think back on the story, I realized that we were right. And and I and I don't ever want to forget the awe of appreciating, you know, a 1964 Topps mantle, you know, PSA 2 quality as just this amazing object in the hobby. And I, and I still look at the cars that way. And that's the, that's the reason I collect so much of what I did. Yeah. And, and there's signed 1933 Gaudi in the chat. Yeah. And I, I reached out to him when you sent me that Mossy also and showed him that my daughter had it. Um, so it, it's an awesome community. All right. I'll, I'll wrap this one up. I, I want to tell a story um, that made me realize what a special community the vintage collecting world is. This was early pandemic, and I, I embarked in collecting my first vintage set with my daughter, the 1960 Topps baseball set. We had a small starter set that we came into and loved the colors, loved the horizontal layout. And we decided we didn't want to collect the set by buying cards a la carte on eBay. It was too easy and too expensive. We wanted to sort of meet collectors and try, you know, try to do it in a much more interesting, human-related way. And this was before I was on Instagram. I, I was trying to find a hobby community on Reddit. And there are some baseball cardboards on Reddit. There was a guy who posted that he was working on his second or third 1954 Topps baseball set. Really interesting guy. And he saw one of my posts that I was looking for comments from 1960. He reached out. And it, we ended up having this long uh, I think you would call it epistolary relationship, letter writing to each other back and forth, um, telling longer and longer stories. The guy I learned, his name was Jack Patton. He was a he was a minor league baseball coach. He coached Ken Griffey Jr. in San Bernardino. Uh, he you could it, you should Google Jack Patton, uh, the manager who sold uh, who traded a, a player for a bag of baseballs, a player who ended up uh, named. Uh, uh, I'm blanking on his name, but he, he ended up playing in the big leagues. And Jack Patton is a storyteller. And he ended up learning about me, sharing, sending me uh, pictures of his memorabilia rooms, sending me over 100 1960 tops baseball cards for almost nothing. Um, but he sent me autographs of players he coached. Eli Gerbo was one. The stories that he shared with me were much more valuable than the cards. And I and I began to realize that there's, you know, people that are into vintage collecting naturally are interested in stories and storytelling. And I think storytelling is a generous act. It's 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 a way of sharing something, you know, wisdom or some, something of entertainment with your listener because you're you're hoping to give them something from it. And I I think that spirit of generosity is so alive and well in the vintage hobby. And, and frankly, it's it's different than any other group I've ever met. And I, I could share dozens of stories of interacting with people who found out that I had an interest, found out that my daughter was collecting and gave me things, sent me things, um, all kinds of gifts. At, but but even more importantly, the stories to me. And and that was sort of it was especially in that world of set collectors that I realized had um, an interesting take on stories and um, and the long, tedious acts of working towards a goal. But um, Jack Patton was someone who really sort of taught me the example. And I'll never forget the interactions I had with him. And I've never been dis 
disappointed by the hobby. Um, ever since I decided to really dive in, we finished that set. We finished the 1960 set. We've gone to two nationals. I'm going to be doing this for the rest of my life. And I and I always think of these generous acts like Matthew when you you sent me the the sign Mossy as a reminder that I need to be that storyteller and I need to be the the gift giver that's also finding other people and what their interests are. And w- when we when we take the you know the dollars and cents out of out of our eyeballs sometimes and realize how much do we really care about, you know, $40 or $50? Like when you have an opportunity to do something special for somebody else. And it really is just little acts of generosity that I think make such an impact. So I'm extremely grateful for all of those interactions. I'm really grateful for the community. And I, I really do believe notwithstanding, you know, the occasional bad actors you hear about, it's it's one of the kindest communities I've ever been a part of. Yeah, that's really well said. And um, I guess the only thing I want to add there too is like, you know, um, generosity of knowledge, right? Like, I think that that's a big, a big part of the hobby. And I think it's a big part of, of vintage collecting too, right? It's like, there's so many of these rabbit holes that go down to, but there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of really nice vintage collectors that are really giving with their time to be like, okay, you know, this is the way that I like at it, or here's something that you might not know. And I think that, um, you know, that, that's a really important part of it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And Jonathan, I enjoyed hearing too about, you know, kind of the, the set building community that that's not a part of, you know, not, not a big part of what I do. I am working on a couple sets very slowly, but I don't really consider myself a set builder. I, I know you, you've done, you know, quite a bit of that in, including with your daughter and a way that's really, really cool. And it's neat to hear, um, some of the, you know, kind of sub community elements that go into that, that you've experienced that probably um, are, you know, a, a real part of why that's an, a really important part of the hobby for you. Yeah, cool. yeah absolutely. Yeah. All right, let's keep it moving. Um, now we're going to rock the boat <laughs> and do a little overrated, underrated. So we're going to shift the tone here. Um, at Matthew, last time we did this, you went last. So I was thinking of giving you a the um the honor of going first then I'll, then i'll go and we'll, we'll let nate wrap this one up okay so um yeah this week was really hard for me because like coming up with people that are overrated and vintage is just like it's just so difficult because like in my mind because i also collect modern cards right and and so oftentimes my first stance is almost always it's really that cheap you know it <laughs> always just seems like like, like these cards are just like so inexpensive compared to like the hype cycle that is like modern cards. So it's, it's hard to kind of pick somebody out to be, um, overrated, but I'll do my best here. Um, so maybe first I'll start out with underrated because it's easier. So my underrated pick is this gentleman. So what I'm showing on the screen is a 1935 Diamond Stars Hank Greenberg and a, a PSA 3.5. So I think Greenberg is is a really underrated guy because right he played in the era that kind of spanned from like basically like the Lou Gehrig era through kind of like the DiMaggio Ted Williams era. And of course, like um if you look at his stats, they're just mind-boggling. They're like insane. And um like Ted Williams, um he lost a lot of his playing time due to military service. So he lost three full seasons and the majority of two additional seasons. Um, 
But if you look at his numbers, right, he was pulling like a 1.1 OPS over multiple seasons um, and just, you know, always among like the league leaders and home runs and RBIs. Um, I obviously he's one of like the great Jewish players uh, that that that's often brought up between like him and Kopax. Um, but he also just doesn't have that many cards. That's one thing I think that hurts him, right? He 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 has the the thirty four Gaudi. I think that's usually considered his rookie. There's this thirty five Diamond Stars, which I really love. And then the other, I think the other one that always pops out to me is the forty one Play Ball, which is a pretty nice card, but also kind of ridiculously inexpensive. Um, but you know, considering kind of like, um, his impact on the game, both like when he played, you know, being one of the only Jewish players, and then also later on in his, his life, when he was an executive kind of really advocating for the inclusion of African-Americans in the league, I think he's someone that, that at least to me, like the price of his cards always seems like kind of not high enough considering who he was. And I think if you look at his stats, like some of his counting statistics aren't great, but that's because he lost so much, so much of his time, right? Um, and even with his current counting stats, I think if you look at, so one of my favorite statistics to look at is this Jaws rating on Baseball Reference, which is what they kind of use. They use that as a kind of a Hall of Fame marker, and it's kind of it's the average of their their peak WAR over seven seasons. And then their career war is kind of an equal average of those two. And even with all of the time that Greenberg wasn't in the game, I think he's still like a top 20 first baseman. And uh, there you go. Yeah. So we got, uh, yeah. so, so Nate, you want to describe the card you're showing? Yeah, sure. This is the um, 1941 play ball Greenberg that you had referenced, Matthew. And yeah, you, you, Rough, you know, th this, I, I think it's just, it's such a pretty card. I mean, look at the way that kind of lime green, when it hits the light, just glows Man. and such a great swinging batting pose. So, yeah, I figured I'd, I'd grab my raw copy. And then this is the oh. 39 raw as well. So, you referenced a couple of his other ones. I figured I'd, I'd grab them. They were nearby and show them. So, I'd Lex, both raw. That is so cool. <laughs> That's. <laughs> awesome nate yeah so he doesn't have many cards right but i love those sets i think are some of the best 34 gaudi 35 diamond stars the 39 play ball 41 play ball those are some of my favorite sets of all time and um you can get these greenbergs for relatively cheap and i think that you know just a great guy to collect so he's my he's my um underrated but uh, I, mean, I gotta say, Matthew, that's one of the cards that triggers my inner my inner voice saying, "Don't be jealous, don't be <laughs> jealous," because I've seen it in person, and it is such a gorgeous copy. And you know, even though they can be found cheap, to find a really nice, colorful, centered version like that is not easy to do. No, not easy. Got to shout out my my guy JT, right? He also. I was going on the fence for a while between getting the 34 Gaudi or the Diamond Stars, and I didn't have any Diamond Stars in the collection, and so um, went after that one, found it at the National. It was my my big coup from there. So that was my easy one for the the, the underrated category. Okay, so for my overrated one, um, oh maybe a quick point um, on the the play ball that the card that you had Nate that's a great one to pair with the 50 Bowman Jackie Robinson right and the 144 Ruth or the 41 Playball uh, DiMaggio right similar similar stance yeah 
Absolutely. Yep. Really nice full body swinging stance. That's, yeah. Yeah. Great. Good call. Yep. And uh, Josh in the comments notes that um, that might be the li- the best lime green vintage card of all time. I think he's right. Yeah. <laughs> so overrated. So here's my overrated choice. And it might get the Yankees fans coming after me with the knife. What I'm showing is a, a 1956 Topps uh, Phil Rizzuto. So I chose Phil Rizzuto as the the poor bastard that I would make uh, overrated because I okay so I was going through these this this Jaws statistic and I was like looking at the different um you know the different positions and, and looking at who was in the Hall of Fame and you know and one thing that stuck out in my mind I had kind of linked Rizzuto as being a similar level of performance as um, as Pee Wee Reese like they were both shortstops. They both played in the same era. And if you look at the statistics, it's like, it's insane. It's basically like, um, and they both missed the same amount of time for the war, but Reese has something like, uh, like a factor of like 50% higher career war. Um, I think, um, um, Rizzuto is like kind of like the 38th ranked, um, shortstop in that list which is pretty like he's he's like ranked similarly to like tony fernandez in behind like francisco lindor and of course like he missed time right he missed these three years he had that one mvp season where he hit like 324 but you know he get obviously he gets a lot of um special treatment in the hobby because of two main reasons right number one he was on the Yankees, a, a dynastic team that just like crushed it during those amazing years. But then also all of his years as a broadcaster, right? So it makes sense that his cars are expensive. But I remember when I first started collecting 56 tops and I was like, I was like, you know, getting all the stars. I'm like, man, why am I paying so much money for Rizzuto? This doesn't make any sense. And like, you know, it took me some time to figure out why I was paying so much for Rizzuto for the reasons I just described. Um, but at the same time, I feel like, it's a little bit. It's a little bit much for his performance, but I think my choice here is kind of a weak one. I, I feel bad picking on for poor Scooter. I, yeah, the the only the only reason it's perhaps a weak choice is maybe he's not that highly rated by the hobby. But I, I know I'm supposed to disagree. But I just look, while you were speaking, I looked up his WAR, and it's shockingly low for a Hall of Fame player. You know, forty two point one. It reminded me of a conversation I had with collectors online last year it, this was during the Aaron Judge run-up to his breaking the the single season home run record and I said why aren't collectors more excited about Aaron Judge and a lot of people said he's just too old to accumulate the war he would need to be a Hall of Famer and he already has the same war as uh, Phil Rizzuto so it you know shows you that Phil, Phil's war is perhaps lower than you would expect of, a, of somebody that made it to Cooperstown. Um, Matthew, as someone who grew up listening to Scooter on TV and watching Yankee broadcasts and, and rooting for the Yankees and hearing about the legend of the Scooter, um, I, I think our friendship now is on a, a three or four month, a week probation period here. So. <laughs> now, and that's um, that's that's a pretty good choice. I, your your rationale there makes sense for sure. And I think you're absolutely right. So many of us collectors grew up listening to him, and he had such an endearing voice um, <laughs> calling the Yankees games that there's there's that emotional connection there that counts for a lot of it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I, well, I'm gonna come. I'm gonna come at a New York guy again with my picks too. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do overrated first, and then underrated, and and these two are linked as well. 
But yeah, I'm gonna just bring this card into focus. Joe Namath. Joe Namath overrated by the hobby. So I, I do not have a Joe Namath rookie card. Uh and I must admit I would like to have one. Uh but I'm showing right here uh his 1969 tops card, which has the really bright orange, it's super colorful background. I like this card also because it was the year of his famous Super Bowl win. Uh, and, and quite an affordable card. I actually keep this one up on my shelf. Um, I, I've shared in the past, my my thoughts on overrated, underrated are not an indictment of values in the hobby. I think it's interesting to figure out why they are what they are. But you look at Joe Namath's stats, and it's actually kind of shocking. And, and I'm, I'm <laughs> cheating by staring at some of these uh, comparisons on StatHead. But the guy's career uh, record was, um, let's see, 62 wins, 63 losses. So he he was overall a losing QB. Uh, he completed 50.1% of his passes, and he had about 50 more interceptions than touchdown passes in his career. And he was a terrible runner. Um, you know, he also he won just that one quarterback. Uh, he was all pro four seasons, and, he, of course, he's, he's – uh, in the Hall of Fame. It was a different game back then, but if you compare him to a few contemporaries, you realize there were some other QBs back then who could uh, complete uh, touchdown passes and, and more than 50% of their balls. But, you know, to, to me, it's a lesson. I mean, cl- clearly, statistically, this guy wasn't all that. And but I'm going to, I'll share the underrated guy. Um, and, or actually, it's a couple guys and, and talk about their card values. And then, you know, it's, we can, bat around why why it is that the hobby rates this guy the way it did other than the fact that he was from new york um but it's it's fast it's actually fascinating to look at his stats that are fairly pedestrian um that nate any reaction to that before i jump into the the underrated uh no i i think i think that's a good choice with him right you have these um you know these kind of like softer elements that play into it and that one Super Bowl is so prominent with New Yorkers and, you know, the fact that he called the win and you're guaranteed the win. And he stayed fairly prominent, I think, afterwards, you know, parading around in the mink coats and being a little handsy and, you know, like (laughs) (laughs) kind of stayed in people's consciousness. But that guarantee of that Super Bowl win is probably like 40% of his market value. But those those stats are are bad. Like he'd be out of the league really quickly these days. And um, to go back to something I said earlier, it shows you this hobby is not about who the best players were. This hobby is about stories and it's about history also. And he has a more important place in history because of the the stories and the guarantee and things like that. So there's a couple. I'm just going to throw in two quarterbacks, one that kind of came right before Namath and one, you know, contemporary of his. Uh, Bart Starr is one. And I do have a Bart Starr card. Uh, unfortunately, my uh, my Fran Tarkenton rookie, Fran is the other one I wanted to nominate, and I don't have that on me right now. But Bart Starr and Fran Tarkenton were, if you look up their stats, heads and shoulders above Joe Namath. So this I'm showing the, uh, let's see, this is the 1959 Topps Bart Starr, and I like it because of the bright pink color, and it's it's fun to have uh, the colorful cards. I, I, I think about the rainbows I want to do in, in photography with these. Um, Bart Starr, if you look at him, stats head to head against Joe Namath, just about every category that matters, he was better. He won five championships, 
for the Green Bay Packers, you know, a, a big program. Um, and, and he is a quarterback that gets some love in the hobby. Um, Fran Tarkenton, I would say, gets even less. If you look at Tarkenton's stats compared to the other guys, they're way better. Um, I mean, he he was, a, and I didn't know this until I looked him up, he was a phenomenal runner, uh, more than five yards a carry, lots of rush touchdowns. He, I think... I think it was his record that Dan Marino broke when he when he passed for more yards than target. So his his all time passing yardage uh, record stood for a long time. But let's look at. So I looked at the card values. I thought let's look at PSA six of all their rookie cards, and it turns out the pops are almost identical between three hundred and fifty and four hundred and fifty. The Tarkenton rookie in PSA six is worth four hundred sixty five bucks, and that's actually a, it's a black bordered set. It's a tough six. The star rookie in PSA six is worth fifteen hundred bucks. I might have to get one of those because that sounds pretty cheap. The Namath rookie in PSA six, uh, again same pop count as the Tarkington, five thousand five hundred dollars. And so it's it's a way more expensive card for a guy who wasn't nearly as good of a player, but he was iconic and he was from New York. And um, when it comes to stories, he's the guy we all remember. So that's that's my overrated underrated for the week. I like it. It makes total sense. I think I love your point, Jonathan, that, that you made when we first talked about this last week is that, you know, like we can get out our stat book and talk about blah, 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 blah. But like, that's not what it's about. It is not the card values are not a reflection of the stats, right? It's it's all of like the stories, the legends, the mythology. And, you know, and, that, and that's something that certainly extends to you know, like the Negro League players who like don't have the statistics, right? Like Satchel Page, I think, is basically solely exists as like a mythological figure, right? And it's the it's the stories that that capture the attention. That's that's the big deal. Totally. By the way, I, uh, Josh Hall of Fame cards commented in the chat that the star and the Unitas rookies go together really well, which I I would love to have that pair. And when I was reading about the history of Joe Namath, I learned. I, I always thought it was this epic clash between Namath and Unitas. And I didn't realize until I looked it up, Unitas was the backup QB at that point in time for the Colts. Um, their starting QB had won the NFL MVP, and he, he came off the bench to score the only touchdown. So it it wasn't as much that, you know, this epic clash between Unitas and, and the, the youngster Namath. But the, the history was a little bit different than um, I remembered it. Love that history, Jonathan. Those are some great comparisons, and it's um, I like that you're doing some uh, some non baseball stuff too. We're very baseball heavy sometimes, which is a good. To, the the hobby is baseball heavy, especially the vintage hobby. But good to to mix it up a little bit. And hearing about those three or four quarterbacks from that era being compared is is really interesting. Um. So yeah, my so I'll go uh, with my. I'll start with my underrated and I'm going um, non baseball with mine as well, which is this guy. And um, he, I don't don't think is an underrated player. Uh, I think he's a properly rated player. And, you know, there's a ton of debate about where he fits. I think almost everyone considers him a top 10 um, NBA player of all time. Uh, You know, he, and I guess for uh, I'm showing the cards here, but for folks who are listening, I'm I'm talking about Bill Russell, um, the NBA legend, and I'm showing his um, 1961 Fleer portrait and in action cards. And um, so, you know, I, I think uh, 
you know, when when you debate like, you know, top five or 10 basketball players of all time, he's he's always in that conversation, usually somewhere between kind of four and eight or so, which um, feels to me kind of like the right spot. But from a hobby standpoint, um, you know, I'm I'm just continually surprised by how inexpensive his cards in particular are. He has only three um, main playing days cards, um, kind of, you know, mainstream issues. And those are his 57 tops rookie and these two 1961 Fleer cards. And so Bill Russell's total playing days PSA card population is about 3,800 cards. Wow. His rookie is, is just under 1,200. The Fleer portrait is about 1450 and the Fleer in action is just under 1200. So total playing days PSA pop of this guy who's an 11 time champion, you know, arguably numerically the greatest champion in in major sports, American major sports history, um, you know, top eight player of all time by almost all measures, icon of the game, icon of the civil rights movement. Only the third player in major sports to have his number retired league-wide, which happened shortly after he died last year. And that's along with Jackie Robinson, of course, in baseball and Wayne Gretzky in hockey. Um, that's the type of legendary status this guy has. And, and you know, with, with under 4,000 total PSA-graded cards, um, it just surprises me that there is... Um, you know, and that that there's not more that that the pricing isn't higher on these cards, and you know, it's it's indicative of how far behind the baseball hobby, um, especially on the vintage side, basketball, and you know, and I think football and you know other sports lag. Um, you know, a, a one interesting comparison is the 1953 tops Mickey Mantle. Um, the total PSA pop is 5300. So that one mantle card, there's there's fifteen hundred more of in the PSA pop than there is the three, the only three playing days Bill Russell cards. The the fifty three tops mantle probably has a higher total market cap than all Bill Russell playing days cards, right? Um, Why? Like yeah, right. And it's like it, it, from a hobby standpoint, I just not, not the fifty-two mantle. Like I'm not misspeaking. The fifty-three mantle. Like all right, I could see it if it's the fifty-two mantle. Um, and then uh, the Jim Brown rookie card that has a PSA pop of fifty-two hundred. So it's you know about four and a half times the population of the Bill Russell rookie. You know, basketball cards just were not that popular. Then basketball as a sport wasn't that popular yet in the fifties and in early 60s and so not that many of these cards were made and not many of them were saved and so when you look at the the populations compared to um baseball certainly and but even football you know there there just are so few of these cards out there so um it uh it always kind of i don't know surprises me and you know when, when we have the big uh kind of um sort of run up in pricing it, it happened in vintage basketball cards a couple times there was one in the summer of 2020 um and then another one when everything went nuts in early 2021 and you know i i feel like those cards went up really fast in part because the pops are so small but you know they've they've come way back down and i think over the last year or two um you know as, as vintage baseball cards have stayed really strong 
um, vintage basketball cards have really come down quite a bit. And so, you know, they're kind of lagging way behind, um, you know, some of the other stuff again. So I, I thought he was kind of the, the most stark example to, to make that point with. Well, so there it is, ladies and gentlemen. Nate is in the clubhouse with Ted Williams and Bill Russell as his underrated <laughs> in the hobby. Um, but I got to say, uh, you make a pretty compelling argument, Counselor. I mean, that that pop count, I, I never would have thought the pop count across all three of those cards was that low. I'm I'm thinking uh, buy call options on Bill Russell. So, so Nate, I, I don't know very much about the vintage basketball market, but, you know, when, when, you, when you make, when I try to analyze, like, why could this be, you know, the thing that comes to my mind are like big man syndrome. Is it like, seems like the hobby seems to like dislike big men in general. So, but then I started asking myself, how does uh, Russell compare to Wilt in terms of pricing? Even, even, you know, I know that Wilt's 61 card is his rookie, yeah. but like, how do they compare pricing wise? Yeah. Um, right. So I think the, 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 the Russell rookie from 57, there's about 1200 cards in the PSA pop. I think the Chamberlain rookie from 61 is probably about 2000 or so. So it's close to double than the number of cards. Um, and, you know, great for great. Certainly the Russell is higher, but I think if you, if you, you know, account for pop, I, I would think the Chamberlain value, I, I, it feels to me like the Chamberlain is maybe a little more heavily collected. That may be in part because the 61 Fleer set is so popular among basketball collectors. Um, I see the big man, little man, you know, that, that, that could be part of it. Um, I don't know how much that applies to Vintage. guys going back this far. You know, maybe I kind of, I kind of feel like the all time rankings matter more than where they, you know, like Jerry West or, you know, I, or Koozie, for example, I don't feel like are over collected compared to Chamberlain and Russell based on their position. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So then, so then your argument is really this that like it's basically like a lack of hobby awareness that like these cards aren't as collected as you might expect. Like the vin the the basketball, you know, would you say that like, you know, basketball is pretty much like like 1980 tops and, and later, like like Bird Magic Johnson, you know, and then that and that and that that it going forward or Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. Or yeah, or even 86 Fleer and later, or for, for a lot of people, um, you know, maybe 03 exquisite and later, you know, I think there's, there's a huge, um, modern and ultra modern basketball hobby, but, you know, for, for whatever reasons, it just has not translated to, to more interest on the vintage side. And certainly, you know, there, there is a real community of vintage ba basketball collectors and very passionate, but, it's just a lot smaller, a lot, lot smaller than it is on the baseball side. I, I think when you look at modern and ultra modern, they're probably fairly similar, is my sense. You know, baseball, is, football, like they're all really popular. Is is another thing, I, when I always think, because I don't collect football or basketball very much. And the, the other thing that I always think about with these two sports is that, like, it feels like the, the game just changed a lot. And for that reason, people just, like, disregard the game, like, prior to some particular era like it's not collectible because it's not really the same game that they're playing now so there isn't maybe the connection that they have in baseball is that is that ring true or is that just kind of um a misconception on my part hmm. 
that that could be a part of it. I you know I I do think that probably is more prominent. You know I think you could make that argument to some degree in baseball as well, but it probably is a little stronger in basketball and football. Just you know based on the level of athleticism involved in those sports and the evolution of the athleticism in those sports. Um, so that could be part of it, Jonathan. And you have any yeah. thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah. But by the, I do think that argument sort of is applies across sports, but probably more so in basketball. One thing that I thought was a really interesting barometer of how cards are regarded in the hobby. Remember the PWCC iconic 100? Lo- lots of great discussion. Of course, lots of controversy around it. Um, I, I, I pulled it up. The the um, the Russell and the Chamberlain rookies were both in the 20 to 10 ranking. So I think that it looks like Russell was number 17. Uh, and then Wilt Chamberlain was regarded, the rookie was regarded more highly than that at number 12, just above uh, Hank Aaron and Mickey Mantle rookie. So the Wilt was pretty high up on that list, but the Wilt was, both of those cards were still below the Jordan PMG. Uh, they were both below the LeBron exquisite. Uh, so if, if you look at modern basketball cards, they were still coming in, you know, much higher than the uh, the Wilt and and the Russell rookies, right? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, yeah, good stuff, guys. So, yeah, my um, my most overrated. I don't have a card to show. Um, um, it it may be a while if ever before I. Feel- <laughs> I'm I'm a little nervous about putting this one out there because I feel like you know I did Nolan Ryan last time and there was some backlash. This this one. Can- so I'm I'm struggling here a little bit, but I'm going to go with it. Um, so my most overrated uh, for for this week is um, so I'll, I'll t- tell you a few things about the guy. So he um, he once uh, stepped to the plate without um, what would be considered normal footwear, and he hit a triple when he did so, um, or or so the story goes. He um, he accepted a bribe to um to throw the 1919 world but but still notably hit 375 in the series he was subsequently banned from baseball he's not in the hall of fame um his character features very prominently in in a well-known and and loved baseball movie field of dreams so um i'm talking about pre-war Hobby darling, shoeless Joe Jackson. Why? Uh, <laughs> we're gonna be canceled. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna get canceled. I'm, you, I'm coming hard on these overrated. I'm, I, I'm yeah. not bunches. Um, so <laughs> cut the feed. It's it, <laughs> that's it. I have nothing else. <laughs> um, so uh, right. It's about the stories right and and this guy is as i just alluded to he's got a lot of the stories but there i feel like there's this sense that there was all this substance that went with the stories as well and there was some there was some (laughs) um but (laughs) but you know i look back and and i compare to some of the guys right so you talk like um nap lajway you talk tris speaker rogers hornsby so um like Shoeless, I feel like the conception is like his career was cut short because he was banned from baseball. And so, you know, he didn't get to accumulate stats, but he was a really dominant player when he played. 
So he led the league in um, in ops once, never led the league in batting average, never led the league in home runs. So Lashaway, for example, led the league in ops three times, batting average four times, and, and led it in home runs, never led the league in war. Rogers Hornsby, who, Matt, um, Jonathan, you showed a, a really cool yeah. car last time we were on, led the league in war seven times. So, like, I, I look at shoeless and he he was a good player he he was good um like you know but i think of like don mattingly when i look at his stats right like don mattingly was really good but his career was cut short around the same time he had a a nice little um you know peak of five or six years i think mattingly probably led the league in more stuff than shoeless did during his peak um but i just I just don't see it. And, you know, the, the Jaws, um, let me see what the Jaws, um, Matthew, you got it. Oh, you got it. Yeah. So as a right fielder, where does he rank? I think he's he's 14th, 14th. Yeah. 14th in right field, just below Mookie Betts, Paul Weiner, Larry Walker, and Sam Crawford with Harry. All Hall of Famers. Yeah. 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 Ahead of Tony Gwynn. And ahead of Tony Gwynn and Dwight Evans. Yep. Um, so, I mean, I don't, and so, but right. So the stories are awesome. The character is awesome. He was a very good player, but I feel like, um, you know, you look at his hobby pricing and the amount that he is, um, pursued and and the number of people who consider a shoeless Joe to be their ultimate Holy Grail in particular, the 1914 Cracker Jack. And I, I look at his 14 Cracker Jack. And so, all right, it, it's multiples of the Ty Cobb Cracker Jack, right? It's multiples of all of Wagner and Lajouet and Walter Johnson. Um, and you say, all right, that's because it's low pop, right? Because people got upset about the Black Sox scandal and they didn't keep his cards. They threw them out. They kept the Cobbs because he was awesome and people liked to collect him and they didn't want to throw out Cobbs. Um, but then I look at, you know, his pop, it, it was his pop from 1914 is about 40. Christy Mathewson's is about 30, right? Maddie has that super rare 1914 Cracker Jack card. Yet the shoeless is the one, and the Maddie card is expensive too. Shoeless is more expensive and I feel like way more sought, right? Than Maddie, even though it's higher pop and you have a guy like, like his, who just historically is not even in the same ballpark as a guy like a Maddie. Um, so I don't know. I just, I feel like I could see him having a prominent place, but I can't see him being the guy that everyone has at the very top of their pre-war list of, I gotta have a 50 or a hundred thousand dollar card of this guy. So oh, I realize I, I better shut down my social media and leave for a month or two and let him know. What do you got? La- ladies and gentlemen, when we uh, debated doing the, the overrated, it was Nate who said, don't be too surgical in your takedowns here, okay? But that was too much, Nate. Too much. <laughs> Maybe one of the top five cards in the hobby. You've taken it down. I, I, I think you got to look at everything Publius thirteen said in the chat because it's brilliant stuff. Yeah, and and Publius is right. Ray Liotta has never given a compelling performance on screen as Christy Matthewson. So I think, uh, you know, Shoeless Joe had that going for him as well. But uh, I'll I'll say this. We've talked a lot about 
something in these in in collecting and athletics about there's something special in the what could have been and even mickey mantle is a what could have been when you look at his injury history bo jackson from our era was a what could have been and uh shoeless joe jackson was the greatest what could have been i think um in in the vintage hobby and i think that's that's one of the reasons it's such a special card you you know my ultimate grails of grails the uh the 14 cracker jack shoeless is one of the top two so uh, i'm sticking with my pick <laughs> so yeah uh, it's so funny that 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 this is the one that you suggested nate because it, it actually crossed my mind in in, to, in thinking about my overrated for today to go with shoeless because i was perusing the jaws and i'm like man yeah he's, he's actually not that high up there and then and then quickly quickly i came to the conclusion that that's like a third rail, man. I can't, I, can't, I, can't, I can't throw in a vintage baseball card chat. I cannot take down the shoeless Joe Jackson. So I, I just quickly backed away. But I applaud your cojones for uh, and in, in your great explanation of it. But yeah, I, that's a that's an awesome thing. My, my takeaway is invest in Mookie bets. Um, <laughs> and you know. Needless to say, they're great cards, right? Like the the Cracker Jacks, of course, are great cards. Um, his E ninety rookie, the with the purple background, is an awesome card. His that T two ten old mill card with with the red. I, I mean, you know, he's got some just incredible hobby cards, and I know there are a lot of people in the community. Uh, nothing I say is going to change how people feel about him, but you know, I I just for for me when I look at him, it. Like, I'm just not as compelled by the elements of the story that mm. I feel like have pushed him to the forefront. Like, I just, I'll, I'll take the Lajuays because I feel like there's a lot that's really compelling about him too. I'll take the Cracker Jack Wagners and the Matthewsons and, you know, some of those guys. Just, you know, it's all comparative. And I'm not saying I wouldn't love to have shoelaces, but I just wouldn't love to have them at, you know, at, 20x trip speakers you know like that that's where it just feels to me like it's a bit much but but a lot of people would and a lot of people would who have been in the hobby and collecting stuff for a lot longer than me and have much better collections than me <laughs> uh but uh and you know maybe one day i'll i'll change my view on it but but for today at least shoeless is my guy hey, you make you made a good case for hornsby as an underrated by the way which I, which i would definitely nominate as well seven right. times yeah. league and war unbelievable yeah. the, right. the thing the thing with hornsby though is that like he he just i don't think he has that card yeah. he doesn't have the card we're like yep that's that's hornsby's card because he has the the 33 gaudies that are probably the closest but then as we pointed out that was like late in his career right so he doesn't have like an it card and i think that really hurts him and for whatever reason it seems like the hobby and the cardinals just don't get along we got him and we got musial they just they're just not yeah. there yeah, that's a great point about Hornsby. Yeah, very, very good point. All right, uh, final final agenda topic, and then we're going to wrap it up. Was a recent mail day or just parting thoughts? Uh, I'll go first on this one, and then Nate and then Matthew, why don't you uh, wrap it up for us? The, so this is the, the most recent mail day I had are these cards right here. And um, many of you might have followed. I did this uh, whimsical series on Instagram posting, uh, food and retail brand oddball cards from the junk wax era. 
And one of my Instagram buddies, uh, again, a guy, a guy I absolutely would call a friend who I've never met or talked to. His name's Adam. Uh, he, he was formerly known as Adam Strick. Now it's pictures of cardboard. And after the series, he said, do you have any of the Jimmy Dean cards? And I said, no, I don't. They're really cool. I, I saw them, but I've never owned one. And he said, what's your address? And he sent me this big pack of cards. I think in here are, so I'm showing these are these gorgeous red 1991 Jimmy Dean cards. We got Barry Bonds, Ricky Henderson, Dwight Good, and my, my favorite player on top, Daryl Strawberry, which in my binder of maybe four or 500 Daryl Strawberry cards, never had this one. That's going in the binder. Um, he sent me some 93 Jimmy Dean cards including an unopened pack that has Nolan Ryan on the top. Uh, a few 92s. Check out this Cecil Fielder. That This is a vintage uh, baseball body right there. Cecil, he, he, he had some weight to put behind the ball. He was, he was a beast. Uh, Frank Thomas. And then the, the, the 91 Ken Griffey Jr. This is like legit PSA 9 quality. Um, I opened these with my son. Had a blast. I mean, just so cool that... I mean, he, he spent more on shipping alone than most people would you know tip tip a waiter or waitress for a nice dinner it, it was um and and frankly that kind of experience for me has become commonplace because i've met i've made so many friends like that in this hobby so um yeah that's that's right uh gaudi uh, the man <laughs> fielder ate a ton of sausage it's, a, it's an appropriate endorsement uh for that guy it, man, back-to-back, -back, I was looking at his stats on those cards. Back-to-back -back seasons, he hit, oh, like, 95 home runs and, like, 265 RBIs. It was crazy. Um, but, anyhow, Adam, if you watch this, thank you for the mail day. I've been enjoying these cards, and I'm excited to to binder them up uh, in their, their appropriate places in the PC. That's awesome, dude. That's so cool. Adam is great. He's got... For people who don't follow um, um, pictures of cardboard, you really should. I think that in terms of like visual quality of, of images, one of the best accounts there yeah. is on Instagram. Yeah, he, he's an artist and I've chatted with him a bunch and he, and he responded and he's like, no, I'm really not. I, I think he's a scientist he, uh, like you are, Matthew. Uh, his, his wife's also on Instagram and um and she has a she is an artist and a, an art teacher. She does beautiful paintings on Instagram, and I follow her as well. So cl clearly, they, there's an artistic eye in that family. Awesome, Matthew. Do you, do you want to go next? Or? Yeah, yeah, I can go next. So, um, a recent pickup that I wanted to show off was uh, this card right here. So this is this is a 1956 tops early win PSA six. So um, I mega bid on this card. So, um, so you know, I, I obviously collect um, 1956 tops. That's, you know, that's the name of my IG account. Um, and I've been slowly trying to kind of build up a group of the Hall of Famers from 56 tops in kind of PSA roughly like six to seven, mo mostly six, pretty hardcore actually right at six. And like this I have so I have an ungraded version of this card, but I wanted this is like the one registry thing that I do is the the fifty six tops Hall of Famers, and I've been looking for like a a centered version of this early win card for like four years on on eBay seriously, and so there was one that I lost 
last year because I just like forgot about the auction ending. And it was one of those like, God, like, you know, when you've been waiting for that long and then you drop the ball, it's just like such a gut punch. Um, and then this one came up for auction on eBay, maybe like two weeks ago. And I think I was like, I just, I just went like three X above market value. Cause I'm like, I just, I cannot not lose this card under any circumstances. Right. So, um, I did the mega bid, just threw it down and, and, and the pay, overpaying for it. But it like the amount of money that I overpaid for it is well worth like not having to suffer another few months of not having a nice centered version of this card. And and what's crazy is that like early win is a hall of famer, but like just barely, like he's always on the list of people that like, why is this guy in the hall of fame? Um, if you look at, you know, if you look at baseball references, his jaws rating puts him at like 65th overall for starting pitchers. So he's like not that far above like Cole Hamels and stuff like that. So he, he, you know, he's in the hall of fame, but for me, it wasn't a big deal card because it's just so hard to find a centered version in a PSA six. So that's the one I'm kind of, that's my recent pickup. I'm pretty jazzed about. That's a great pickup, Matthew. How, how, um, how common is the mega bid for you? Is that something you do on, on occasion or was that pretty rare? Or? That was pretty rare. I mean, I wasn't, this isn't going to, you know, I knew it wasn't going to cost me like a thousand dollars, but if I'm like, if I overpay by $30 or 40, which is just a high percentage of what the card is worth, like I didn't care. So it was, it's pretty uncommon for me, but for like a, like a less expensive card like this, um, you know, the multiplicative factor is, isn't that big of a deal because the total like dollar value is pretty small. So I'm not a big mega bidder, but I did it for this early win and I'm very happy. And, and like you said last time, the time value might be really high if you don't get it, right? You might have yeah. to wait a year or more to, to see another one in that grade that centered. So like the, the time matters. So go go get it. That's awesome. You got it. Yeah. Good connection. Um. Yeah, so I have a Zion Williamson that I'm showing here. See, you guys think I don't have some modern and ultra modern stuff, appealing to the the young viewers. I like I like it. Yeah. <laughs> Taking down a shoeless, showing Zion Williamson. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Followed up with with a Zion card. Yep, um, and and a Mike Green, Greenwell 1987 tops signed card. Um, so the Zion I've had um for a while i've just had it out lately because um and and it's the mount zion court kings rookie card of his in in a psa 10 um it's <laughs> for a zion card fairly rare i don't know i think there are like 40 or 50 of these in a psa 10 or something and i just really like the court kings cards i feel like they're really cool looking i've been happy that zion has been able to put together a good start to the season here i feel like um it's good to see him both from a hobby standpoint and just as a basketball fan doing some good things and seeing the pelicans play well so i've had that one out and been enjoying it and um and then the mike greenwell that's when i got the mail the other day uh and this goes in my um 1980s autographed uh card sub collection he was a guy that was, he wasn't quite like Greg Jeffries level prospect in the eighties, but there was a time when Greenwell first came up where he looked like he was going to be like, you know, one of the next really, really great players. He had a couple of just phenomenal seasons yeah. and his cards got really hot. So I have some pretty cool memories of um, collecting him, even though I was a Yankees fan, but 
um, still being as into the hobby, you know, when you're that into the hobby, you, you collect everybody. It doesn't matter what team. So, um, I was happy to find, uh, this 87 top signed card to go in that collection. Man, Greg Jeffries was exactly the guy I, I thought of when you showed me the card. I remember Green. I actually think of Greenwell as having been the better player. Yeah. But yeah. He probably didn't quite have the, the rookie hype, certainly, that Greg Jeffries was whenever 1989 or thereabouts. Yeah. 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 I, I remember he, yeah, he hit for a really high average, right? Like, right. I'm looking at baseball reference now, and yeah, 87 was the kind of first year he was kind of full time player, and he hit 328, then he hit 325 the next year. So, yeah, in those years, he was he was second in the MVP voting to Canseco in 88. That's wow. that's a big deal. Yeah. 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 The big market too, and Matthew, how how did he do in the couple of years after that? Did he decline really quickly after that? Yeah, so in '89 he hit 308 and he made the All Star team, which was pretty good. But then after that, it kind of like 297, 300, and then in 1992 he hit 233 in limited time. But then he actually bounced back back in '93, played a full season, hit 315. Wow. So not, not too bad. I mean, he didn't walk a lot, so his on base isn't that high. His OPS is kind of like in the, um, aside from those years where he was really hot, it was kind of like 800. So mm-hmm. not like great, but, but solid, right? Solid. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. But but for a while, it, it, a few MVPs, I think, were priced into his cards there right? <laughs> for a little period when he was first coming on strong. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Well, hey, it's been great hanging out with you guys. And I, and I mean, all of you guys, everyone in the chat, I really appreciate all the comments and the engagement. This has been fun. And I think we'll do it again in a couple of weeks. Absolutely. Great hanging out with you guys. Thank you to everyone who joined us tonight. We really appreciate all the comments and questions and you guys making it a lot more fun in the chat. And yeah, Jonathan and Matthew uh, always loved talking cards with you guys. And you were awesome and enjoyed it. Um, yeah. And I, I just want to say too, if people have other ideas about how to make this better you know how to make the experience better please like you know reach out and you know we're definitely receptive to feedback we want to make it fun and make it available awesome all right see you guys that's a wrap this has been a presentation of rough cuts we'll see you next time